I messed up big time this week. I, I often mess up small time, but I messed up big time this week. Uh, I was trying to clean some unused things off my computer screen. Now, that's not fingerprints off the plastic, for those of you that don't know. That's icons on there. You know, every once in a while, there's an automatic program that comes up and says, would you like to clean the icons? You know, and I always say no. Well, I was getting kind of a lot of stuff, and I was thinking about reconfiguring a little bit. And so, so I'm, I'm dragging these things, you know, I'm putting these things in the recycle bin. And, and then I think, okay, I'm going to empty the recycle bin. That is a wrong decision. Because I couldn't tell on some of them if they were shortcuts, which means it's just a little thing that directs you where to get to it on your computer, or if I was actually dragging the thing in there. And I, I fiddled with that a while, and when I was satisfied that, no, it was just the shortcuts in there, I hit the button. And that was the wrong thing to do. I have this big folder that has a whole bunch of subfolders that has all of my files in it. And thankfully, it was backed up to a drive that's outside of the computer. And thankfully, I think I've recovered even what I lost through getting a separate program and so on, but that process isn't finished yet. Um, Sometime when I don't have a sermon to prepare, I'm going to have to work on that. I am not a computer expert. Did you know that? (laughs) I don't even play one at work. I'm smarter this week than I was last week. You know, there are some lessons you don't want to learn the hard way. And one of them is what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. It would be a terrible shame for you to come to the end of your life, as Helen Blom did this last week or week and a half ago, and to face the Lord and for him to say, Who? Because you had a mistaken notion about what it means to believe in Christ. As we conclude our studies in the Gospel of John, this is, this is number 103 for those of you that have been keeping score. We're actually going to go back just a little bit to the end of chapter 20 and look at what John calls the moral to this story. You know the old Aesop's fable, they were still on cartoons when I was a kid and they'd have this big story and then at the end they'd go, here's the moral to that story. Well, John tells us that. Look at John chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 26. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, and he stood in the midst, and he said, Peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, look at my hands, reach your hand here, put it to my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believe. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And truly, Jesus did many other miracles, many other signs that pointed to who he was in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. 
John gives us the moral to the story. He said, I didn't write this book so you could know a bunch of stories. I didn't write this book so you could have a concise theology of Jesus that you could set on your shelf and say, see, there's the truth about Jesus. He said, no, I wrote this story so that you would believe, and not just believe any old thing, but believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and through that believing you may have life in his name. We're going to look today in depth at what John calls the moral to the story because it would be a shame for us to spend all of this time studying the gospel of John and for you to be fuzzy at all about what it means to believe in Christ. And so the first thing that we want to understand is this. The means of faith or the means of believing is the truth of God. One of the things that I learned that I haven't studied before in depth was this. The word that's translated believe and the word that's translated faith are the same word, just in different grammatical forms. Often when it's a verb, it's translated believe, something that you do. When it's something you have, it's translated faith. But that's not consistent either. And so we're going to use the word faith today and say this, the means of obtaining faith is the truth of God. John, even in his little moral statement at the end of this book, refers back to the book. He said, many other things he did which are not written here, but I wrote these so you can believe. The encouragement to believe from John comes at the almost the end of the book. We have what many authors have called the epilogue in chapter 21 that we've already looked at. But he gives us this encouragement, and so he is referring to the whole body of truth that he's already been talking about. And Paul states this principle this way in Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You cannot believe what you do not know. Now, there are things about God, questions you may have, that he chooses not to answer in his word. I understand that. There are things about your life which you may not fully understand from God's word. I, I, I know that. But when it comes to the doctrine of Christ and the idea of salvation, the concept of salvation and all that is there, God has been very explicit in laying out the truth. And he says, the truth is what I'm asking you to believe. He doesn't say, take a big leap into nothing. And somehow that faith will save you. Faith doesn't save. Faith is the vehicle by which God saves but he teaches us what we're supposed to believe in the word of God. 1 Corinthians 15, a famous passage that summarizes this truth for us. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, or the good news about Jesus Christ, which I preach to you, which you received, and in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast that word. Real Christian faith is not just about somehow clinging on to something. It's about clinging to God's word, which I preach to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now, certainly, uh, the, 
the book of John is called the Gospel of John. And so when we look at, when we look at 1 Corinthians 15 and 4 verses, we could rightly say, that's not the whole Gospel. Because the whole Gospel take, took John 21 chapters, took Matthew 28 chapters, etc. But this is a summary of the truth that we need to understand. And so if we were to say, what is the truth we need to believe The truth that we need to believe has to do, first of all, with the person of Christ. John refers to it here in chapter 20 of his book. He says, you need to believe that Jesus, the historical person who was born or who lived in Nazareth, he was born in Bethlehem, lived in several places, but Nazareth is considered his home. That historical man that you know about, I'm writing this book so that you will look at that man and say he is the Messiah who was promised from the Old Testament. When you see the word Christ in the New Testament, it refers back to the word Messiah in the Old Testament or Savior. You could just translate it Savior. In the Old Testament, that Messiah represented not only spiritual salvation as we would think of with Christ, but also represented national salvation for the country in terms of a political kingdom. But part of that is his ministry is spiritual ministry. You need to understand who Christ is, who God claims that he is, that he existed in all of eternity as the second person of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that he took on a body on the day we call Christmas Day. He he was not born properly, but his human body came into existence by the Holy Spirit. He, He came into the world on that day. He lived, and he died on the cross to pay for our sins, and he was buried and rose again, as these points will go on. We need to understand who the person of Christ was, and secondly, we need to understand the condition of mankind. 1 Corinthians 15 says... Christ died, why? For our sins. Okay. In a very brief summary statement, he makes reference to who Christ was and who we are. God says that we are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And that verse is, is descriptive, and then that, in, in that word was used as a target, if you will. And if we had a target here and a bow and arrow which uh, I can't really shoot without scraping my arm. But if I miraculously could, and I pulled the bow back, and I let the arrow fly, and it hit the target, that would be what God calls achieving the glory of God. But he says no one, no one achieves the glory of God when they shoot their life out of the bow of their activity. He says we are all sinners. We need a Savior. That passage goes on to talk about the delivery of God's message. That is, the Apostle Paul said, look, I have taught you this truth. And then it goes on to talk about the power and validity of Christ when it talks about him being raised from the dead. The resurrection of Christ demonstrated his power over sin, but it also demonstrated his truthfulness. He said, destroy this body and I will raise it up in three days or destroy this temple, and I will raise it up. He said, I will be in the ground like Jonah was in the whale three days and three nights. Some people have the benefit of spending their early years in a Bible-teaching church, and some people don't. Increasingly today, we meet people who really don't know anything of God's truth. And that's not to be, uh, nothing to be ashamed of, 
It's because we're raised one way or another. But when it comes to the time of helping someone believe, those of us who have been around and in church since we were two weeks old have to remember that we need to teach people into the kingdom. Sometimes we dump this little 1 Corinthians 15 gospel load and people go, "Ah, ah, ah," and we think they're rejecting the Lord when the truth may be they don't know enough to reject, but they also don't know enough to accept. And so we have to become teachers of the gospel, not not just evangelizers who hand out the four spiritual laws and, and, and sort of you know attack people on the street guerrilla style and then wonder why they don't accept the Lord. Or if they do accept the Lord on the spot, in a few weeks they fall away. And we think, oh, that's too bad. The too bad part is us. Because <laughs> we got to teach the gospel. I hope that happens here from the pulpit and from my Sunday school class, but I know it happens in my office. It's a wonderful opportunity, and it's an opportunity for you. We have, a, we have a little Bible study. I'm using this right now with somebody that just teaches through the story of God starting in Genesis and working our way up to the cross. We have to patiently teach people the gospel. If you're here today and you never have believed in Christ, or you're not sure, or you'd like to, but you think, what in the world is going on here? I would love to sit down with you or to get somebody else to sit down with you and help you understand the truth. We know you can't believe what you don't know. And so we want to help you understand God's truth. And that is the starting point for belief. If you're fuzzy on your faith in Christ, the starting point is the truth. The truth of God. And maybe that's what's been lacking in your salvation experience. You don't really know the truth of God. And I have just given a summary of it here today as an illustration to say belief is based, faith is based on truth. Secondly, the process of faith is repentance. Now I know I'm going to create some difficulty in some minds and some argument in some minds when I use the word process in connection with salvation. Now, I fully believe and understand that salvation occurs at a point in time. The process of repentance, in my opinion, is what leads a person to be able to make that decision. And you, you listen as I explain and see if I'm not teaching the truth here. The word repent is a compound word that literally means to know or to perceive something after the fact. In other words, uh, I might know ahead of time, uh, if I'd never seen an edge like this, let's just imagine I've never been anywhere, and I think I can walk on air, we would say, I don't know what's going to happen. But afterward, I would repent of the decision I made. Because I'd look back and go, that was the wrong thing. I was thinking the wrong thing, and now I know what I should be thinking. That's what repentance means. It means to receive truth and to change your mind, and the behavior flows with that. And so the common definition we put with this word is to change your mind. Metanoia, to change your thinking. The response of the people to the first Christian sermon 
which was given by Peter on the day of Pentecost, I think helps us to understand this. Look here. Therefore, this is Peter preaching to several thousand people. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, he has made him to be Lord and Christ. That means master of the universe and savior of the universe. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He said, they, they listened to the truth, Peter taught them the truth, and all of a sudden they went, We messed up. Now what do we do? He said, change your mind about who Jesus is. How did they used to think about Jesus? Well, they didn't used to think that they were sinners in need of a Savior. You see, if you're going to repent and be saved, you have to change your thinking about being a sinner. I don't know how many people you've talked to about the gospel and ask them, uh, you know, are you going to go to heaven when you die? Yes. Why, why, are you, why are you going to make it into heaven? They'll say, I'm a pretty good guy. I treat my family well. I don't cheat. I, you know, this or that or the other. And you start talking about being a sinner, and people kind of bristle at that a little bit. These people bristled at it. Listen to this. Jesus spoke a parable to some who trusted in themselves They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. These were the people who said, look, I do this and I do this. I'm a good guy. Don't mess with me. They trusted that they were righteous and then they despised other people who they thought were not righteous. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The people that Jesus talked to while he walked this earth looked at him and said, What, me? Need salvation? Are you kidding? Do you see what I do? I fast twice a week. I give possessions of all that I have. I do all these things. I don't need salvation. And Jesus looked him right in the eye and he said, You are like a tomb, a grave that has been covered in white paint. There's still dead men's bones inside. They had a choice to make. Are they going to see themselves the way Jesus sees them? Or are they going to see themselves the way they wanted to see themselves. These people in Acts chapter 2 that we read about a minute ago were cut to the heart because they realized they had sinned and put the Son of God to death. They used to believe they were good people because they followed all their own rules, but they came to know that God demands absolute righteousness and without it, hell is waiting. And so when they realized, I'm a sinner, what do I do? They came to believe 
that they were sinners. There's something else. There's something else that we've got to repent of. And it's our belief about who Christ is. I must believe that I am a sinner, and I must believe God's claim that Christ is the Savior. God says, God says in his word that Jesus of Nazareth was the eternal Son of God who took on a human body, lived a sinless life, died as the perfect sacrificial payment for my sin, and he says that nobody else can do that for me except him. But some of the people in Acts chapter 2 thought like this, and all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? While Jesus walked this earth and taught truth, some people listened to him and they went, I think he's the Messiah. To call him the son of David is to say he is a descendant from David, which the Messiah would be. He says, I think he's the Messiah. And other people would go, No, I don't think he is. Now when the Pharisees heard that talk, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Now that's a pretty stark difference. Some people were going, yes, he's the Messiah, the guy we've been waiting for from the Old Testament. And other people said, no, he is a demon-possessed man who cast out demons by the power of Satan. Someone has rightly said that your opinion of Jesus can only fall into one of three categories. Either you have to see him as a liar who claimed to be a bunch of things but was not, like many other men who called themselves the Messiah and, and, uh, and people that other folks have called the Messiah. Or you could say he was a lunatic, as in he was self-deluded, you know, there, there is a term in secular psychology called having a Messiah complex. And, and, and maybe you look at him and go, well, he thought he was something, but he really wasn't anything. Or, he is the Lord and Savior of mankind. See, here's the bind that you get into. A lot of people say, well, he was a good man. Does a good man lie? Well, no. But, so he claimed to be the Son of God. So was he lying? Or was he a lunatic? I don't know about that. I just think he was a good man and we should follow his example. Well, he said he was the Lord of the universe. He said, you need to believe in me or you're going to hell. So you've got to choose what you think of him. Some people clearly in his day thought he was demon-possessed. Maybe that's a fourth category we could add. And some people thought he was the son of God. You cannot be a child of God unless you agree with God about who Christ is. There's a third thing. There's a third thing you need to believe, that you need to repent of. I must believe God's claim that faith is the only vehicle of salvation. Now, what do I mean by vehicle? I mean that faith doesn't save you. Some, we've, we've gotten into this kind of spiritualistic thinking in our society and, and you'll hear people on the TV or the radio saying, you just have to have faith. In what? God doesn't say just have faith. He says have faith in Christ who died on the cross. And so faith is a vehicle. You don't save yourself by believing. You open yourself up and God comes in and saves you through your faith. 
we are saved by grace, that is a gift of God, through faith. Not of ourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so, if you are going to be a true believer, you have to believe that God's claim that faith is the only vehicle. It's not enough to believe that faith is a vehicle for salvation. Uh, There are many places in the world where Christian missionaries could go and say, you need to believe in Jesus. And you know what the people will say? They say, great! I've got a God shelf over here. And I have this God and this God and this God. I would love to add Jesus to my God shelf. I'm not making that up. And they would be perfectly happy with that. But when you say Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. When you say that, then what you're saying is go to your God shelf and scrape it clean and set Jesus there. Then all of a sudden people go, oh, that's different. That's what God calls us to do. We have to repent of the idea that we can contribute to our salvation or that any other God will contribute and that only Jesus can deliver me from my sins. Frankly, this is one of the big sticking points in our own country. You can believe all kinds of things and teach all kinds of things, but that belief alone makes us somewhat unliked. Now, why have I called this a process? I've called it a process because I believe that's what happens. When I was in college, the president of the Bible college used to talk about witnessing to people about salvation. And he said, some people are at a minus 10. (laughs) And that's minus 10 on the spiritual scale where, where zero is the moment that you actually believe in Christ. And he's right. Those of us who grew up in church and grew up with parents saying there is a God in heaven and he had a son and he died for your sins. And we grew up believing because little children believe their parents and and God helped those parents who tell their children lies or or, or wrong things of of all sorts. But parents teach their children and and kids march along. There is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven. And so when some evangelist at Vacation Bible School or Camp Gilead says, there is a God in heaven and his son died for you and you need to believe that, they go, okay. But there there is an increasing host of people in our country who go, is there a God in heaven? I thought the world evolved from a big blob of hot gaseous material. That's what you call being at a minus 10. Now, that's not an insult. That's just the way they were raised. And so we've got to go back and teach the gospel. And as they learn God's truth, they will either accept it piece by piece, or they will reject it. When they accept it, they are repenting. They are saying, I used to think the world evolved from a swirling mass, but now I know that God says he created out of nothing. That is to repent of the doctrine of creation, if you will. And then we go on and on and on, and there comes a point at which all of the truth is in place, and we say, wouldn't you like to believe in Christ as your Savior? And and essentially we're saying, and, and leave all your other beliefs behind. It is the ultimate act of repentance whereby the mind is changed and focused now on Christ. The process of salvation is repentance. 
the culmination of salvation. Excuse me. I left the verse off. I quoted it for you, so that's good. The culmination of faith. That moment at square zero where the decision is made. I, I'm calling that persuasion. I feel like I learned something this week. I, I, I hope you don't mind that I didn't know everything already. It's the coolest thing, honestly. Just, you study the Word of God for so many years, and, and you just keep studying it. And, and I saw something this week that I never really grasped quite as, as plainly, and it's this word persuasion. Did you know that the word persuade in the New Testament is almost the same word as the word faith? It's in the same family of words. I guess you'd call it that way. And it means to be convinced of something, which the word faith essentially means that as well, to be convinced of something. And the New Testament uses this word of persuasion, the idea of being convinced of the reality and truthfulness of God's message. And I think this little episode from the life of Paul really nails down what it means to be persuaded of the truth of God. Acts 26, now as Paul made his defense, he's defending himself in the civil courts, Festus, the... uh, the ruler that he was defending himself before, said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning has driven you right off the reservation. We don't read the scripture that way enough. But that's what it says. I mean, Paul's talking about God and Jesus and salvation. And <laughs> Festus goes, you are wacko. He could say that because he was the ruler. But Paul said, I am not mad, most noble Festus. Paul had to be nice because he's the criminal, not the, you know, the judge. I am not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I speak freely, that's Festus, he knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. Do you understand what Paul says? He's saying, Festus, you read the paper. You get the report from what's going on around here. You know all this stuff happened in Jerusalem just like I'm talking about. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do believe. In other words, you believe in the Old Testament. And then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Do you understand? The Apostle Paul was working it. Man, he was preaching, he was teaching, he was giving it all he got. So much so that the guy goes, you're out of your mind. And Paul brought it right down and he said, do you believe? And this guy says, almost. Either you are persuaded of the truth of the gospel or you are not. There is no such thing as almost saved. Now, we, we might say you're, you, you are repenting of the truth as you, know, as you go, but there comes a time at which you have to say, am I persuaded or not? I got a sales call on the phone in the office on Thursday. I try to be nice. I'm the pastor of a church. <laughs> they know they're calling a church. I think they know they're calling First Baptist Church, although the automated ones, you wonder if they know who they're calling. And uh, I don't know what they were selling. 
because they wouldn't tell me. They had a script, and they were very slick. You know, we're not selling, we're not doing this, now, but we need to make sure you're the right person that we should talk to. And they started asking a series of, in sales, you'd call it qualifiers, but it can also be a series of phishing questions in which they gather data about you, either to use in a data bank somewhere or to use in some malicious form. And so that concerns me. Um, frankly, if you call me up, I'm going to ask what your name is before I tell you the answer to some questions. So I'm trying to be gracious, and what I do in those calls is I wait till they breathe, and then I say, no, thank you, and then I just put the phone down because they're just going to keep talking. And, that, and you know, I don't want to be rude, but I, I got better things to do than to talk to them. So I did that this week, and I think there was a little more call. I said, no, whatever. she kept talking, and finally I'd thank you very much and put the phone down. She called back. And... Uh, I saw, then I got more direct. I said, what are you selling? Or what's the deal? What's the name of your company? Whatever. And uh, she kind of kept going. And then she started asking me these qualifying questions. I said, look, no offense, but I have no reason to believe I can trust you with any of this information. I don't. It's not that I don't trust you, but why should I trust you? I don't know who you are. I have no idea. And I'm kind of going on like that. And she's getting all kind of, ooh, you know, you can trust me or whatever. And I just said, thank you very much. And I hung up. Okay, two days later, I got another call from somebody else, but it was the same company. I remembered the name, and so after she hit her spiel, I go, "Uh, excuse me just a minute, what's the name of your company? And she told me, I wrote it down. I said, and what's your phone number? And I wrote it down, and then she started again. I said, look, somebody called me two days ago, and I told them, no, I'm not interested. Now, there's a law in the state of Washington. I can sue you for $500 if you call me again, and I'm giving you the warning right now. Okay, if you didn't know that, that's the deal. If you tell them not to call, then they cannot call you again under penalty of this $500 thing. I was not convinced. Whoa. <laughs> Sorry, God. I was not convinced that she was being upfront, And so I didn't give her any information. I was unconvinced. Big question you've got to answer on your path to Jesus is, are you convinced? Are you convinced of the truth of God? If you are, then... uh, Here's an example of that, maybe, that'll help you. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priest, the captain, the temple, the Sadducees, they came upon them, they were greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed. So the question I want to ask you today is, are you on the outside or the inside of this belief thing? There has to come a day of persuasion. There has to come a day when you say, yes, I believe it's true. I think Paul put it well in 1 Thessalonians 2. The reason we thank God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, when you heard the truth, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. So when I'm preaching the word of God, are you saying, yes, that's the word of God? Are you saying, well, that's your opinion, Dave. If you're still in the your opinion mode, then you're not persuaded. But when you come to say, that is the truth of God, and I must believe it, that's when you are a believer. 
as I mentioned earlier, Helen, Helen, we had Helen Blom's memorial service this week. She left this life persuaded beyond any doubt that Christ was her Savior. She didn't waver right till the end. That's the persuasion of salvation. I know this is true. I don't think I'd be insulting Helen to say she probably wasn't somebody you'd call a Bible scholar. But she knew the truth of salvation and she believed. She was persuaded it was true. If you are persuaded, if you are persuaded, if you have repented, you've heard the truth, you've changed your mind, and you've become persuaded, the evidence of faith is confession. Romans 10 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, does that make salvation a two-step process? No, it does not. But if you are unwilling to claim Jesus as your Savior, then something has not happened in your heart. God says you should believe and confess. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is over all and rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God says, we need to say, Jesus, I need you as my Savior. And when we have become persuaded, we need to say publicly, I am a believer in Christ. No secret agents in God's kingdom. Jesus put it this way, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. I think this is the ultimate confession and the ultimate denial, as in someday you will stand before Christ and he will will either say, I know you, boy, it's good to have you here. Like when I see my friends Randy and Kazia Curry, I'll say, wow, it's great to see you. It's been years. Or he'll look and say, who are you? And if you are unwilling to confess him now, you will be not confessed then. One of the ways we confess him, frankly, is through baptism, because he commanded us to do it. One of the ways we confess him is by telling people when, when those opportunities come, we, we don't necessarily have to stand on a street corner preaching to everybody, but when the opportunity comes, we gladly own the fact that we are a Christian, that Jesus is the Savior, And when the opportunity comes, we tell others how they can believe as well. Years ago, there was an epidemic of the use of this phrase in regard to crime and law enforcement. I don't want to get involved. I don't want to get involved. People would see a crime happen. I don't want to get involved. If you you think you're a Christian, but your attitude is, you know, I don't want to be a fanatic. I don't really want to get over on that side. You know, I know Jesus, but let's not get too... Then there's a real good chance that you really don't know Jesus. So, I come to the end of this sermon and I say, do you understand what it means to be a believer in Christ? 
And the follow-up question is, are you? Do you know now how, what you've got to talk about when you're with your friend? And will you? You may have been in church for years and years and years. But maybe today something clicked and you went, you know what, I have never been persuaded before. I really have not come to that full conviction that this is the Word of God and Jesus is the Savior and that I am a sinner and that I must believe. If you're at that point today, I, I urge you to confess, to claim Christ, to say that you're His believer. That This is how we prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper. See, there are a lot of churches who will teach you that somehow taking this either gets you saved, gets you born again, gets you into God's kingdom, or keeps you saved, or somehow communicates some grace to you, but that's not what Christ said. Christ said, you should do this as a believer who wants to remember me. How can you possibly remember somebody who you are refusing to believe in. I invite you to believe today. I invite you to receive. If you're a Christian, I urge you to examine your life, examine your belief, and see if your conviction has been strong or maybe needs to be strengthened some as you come to this time of worship together. Father, thank you for telling us what it means to be a believer. Thank you for drawing us through this process of repenting and bringing us to the day of full persuasion. We know that it's of you. And we thank you for that. As we come to receive the supper which commemorates your son's death on the cross, may you be honored and may he be remembered as our Savior. I pray in his name. Amen.